This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, June 28th, 2021, episode 88, concerning the plight of the Pater Familias. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. And I'd like to start off today with a slightly belated bit of non-medieval history. Uh, For much of the world, we celebrated Father's Day last weekend, when I had hoped to be ready with this episode. Uh, Around 90 countries celebrate it on the third Sunday of June, following American precedent, The holiday was originally proposed by Washingtonian Sonora Smart Dodd in 1909 in the wake of the popularity of Mother's Day, which had had its first quote-unquote official celebration in 1907, though it wasn't recognized as a national holiday by the U.S. government until 1914. In fact, when a resolution recognizing Mother's Day was first brought before the U.S. Senate in 1908, it was literally laughed out of consideration with a mother-in-law joke. Here's an account of what happened, as described in an article by Kathleen W. Jones from 1980, published in the journal Texas Studies in Literature and Language. Uh, And you can go to our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, for full bibliographic information. Jones writes, quote, The original unwillingness of women's groups to sponsor a day honoring mothers was paralleled by actions in the United States Congress, where on the Saturday morning before Mother's Day, 1908, the Senate engaged in a 40-minute Mother's Day debate. Freshman Senator Elmer Burkett from Nebraska introduced the resolution, quote, that Sunday, May 10, 1908, be recognized as Mother's Day, end quote, and urged Senate members and employees to wear a white flower in honor of the occasion. Having consulted with, quote, some older in service as to the propriety of the resolution, end quote, Burkett was quite unprepared for the derisive comments it elicited. Republican Senator John Keene from New Jersey moved to strike out all the words after resolved and substitute the Fifth Commandment. Other senators described the resolution as unnecessary and, quote, belittling to the sentiment of motherhood, end quote. Facetiously decrying the invidious distinction made by a day for mothers, one senator suggested a Father's Day, a day for cousins, aunts, and uncles, but mention of a mother-in-law day drew the greatest laughter from the assembly. The opposition piously agreed that above all others, they revered the holy name of mother, but the sentiment was simply, quote, not a proper subject for legislation, end quote. To defend his resolution, Senator Burkett vainly appealed to rural fears that urbanization threatened the moral fiber of the nation. The Midwesterner, after reminding the Senate that farm boys who left home to take advantage of the opportunities in the city were instead corrupted by its evil ways, contended that Mother's Day would, quote, get the boys together and make them think of home and mother and the surroundings there, end quote. And end quote as well for the excerpt from Jones's article. So that last bit there just serves to remind us that over a hundred years on and the lines in the so-called culture wars are still drawn at some of the same points. But, of course, you can go back to the Roman satires and find them drawn at those same points, so maybe war isn't the best metaphor for whatever this situation is. Anyway, uh, you may also have noticed there that Jones segues into the Senate anecdote by noting that Mother's Day was opposed by a number of women's groups, which might be a surprising bit of news. 
Uh, Indeed, the idea for Mother's Day was criticized on both ends of the ideological spectrum. The Women's Committee of the American Socialist Party broke with their party's broader doctrine that argued uh, that, quote, women would gladly stay home if only their husbands and fathers were paid adequate wages, end quote, and we're still quoting Jones here. Instead, the American Socialist women argued against the party and against Mother's Day, saying that the emphasis on motherhood served to limit women's choices and ignored their capabilities. Instead, they proposed their own Women's Day, which would, quote, celebrate the whole of woman's potential, not just her maternal instincts, and sought to make women's equality a significant part of the socialist program, end quote. On the other side, the much more traditional National Congress of Mothers also initially declined to lend their official support to Mother's Day, quote, a project designed to advance Victorian sentimentalization of motherhood because their concept of modern motherhood favored the practice of scientific child-rearing methods and the acquisition of specialized training in child care, end quote. And in maybe the greatest and also saddest plot twist of all, the originator of Mother's Day, uh, at least its modern version, Anna Jarvis, worked later in life to abolish the very holiday she had created back in 1907, appalled at how it had shifted from the more religiously-oriented observance she had envisioned into a highly commercialized event, dominated by advertising for florists and greeting cards, with the Mother's Day gift becoming uh, a simpler substitute for the veneration and sentiment Jarvis had advocated. But it's not Mother's Day right now, it's Father's Day. Well, it recently was Father's Day. Uh, But this intro is kind of fitting, because Father's Day has always lived in Mother's Day's shadow. As I mentioned, Sonora Smart Dodd was deliberately following the example of Anna Jarvis in developing her Father's Day campaign. Uh, And I also just have to pause to note how strangely modern this early 20th century moment feels. The idea of senators proposing something as an obviously ridiculous joke. Mother's Day? What's next? Father's Day? Uh, Only for the satire to turn into reality almost immediately. It's like The Simpsons making a joke about Donald Trump being president in the future, but only with an even faster turnaround time. Well, sort of a faster turnaround time, uh, in that the proposal for Father's Day was at least being taken seriously after Woodrow Wilson officially recognized Mother's Day in 1914, but the formal legislative recognition of Father's Day took considerably longer to arrive. And that seems, in large part, to be due to the cautionary example of Mother's Day. That is, the stated reason for resisting Father's Day was fear of the same kind of commercialization happening to it. And then, to give Father's Day its own ironic twist, we have the identity of who was responsible for getting Father's Day so successfully rooted in the cultural consciousness that Congress basically had to recognize it in the year, wait for it, how long do you think? Mother's Day hits the federal calendar as a national holiday in 1914. When does Father's Day get there? Does it sound like something maybe Calvin Coolidge would do? How about Hoover to boost his terrible public image? Surely Eisenhower, right? A very fatherly kind of president. No. It's Richard Nixon in 1972 who actually makes Father's Day a permanent national holiday for the United States, 58 years after the recognition of Mother's Day. So, I guess if you're of the stripe who likes to pontificate about how unfair it is that we don't have a men's history month or men's studies programs in our colleges, I guess there's one more little example you can add to your shoebox of evidence. Though, before you do, 
Before you prepare a lecture on how the early adoption of Mother's Day proves how advantaged women are in society, you might just go reread that history. What is it that Senator Burkett does when he finds his resolution being laughed at? He argues that we need Mother's Day for the sake of the young men. Won't someone think of the young men? Oh, but to complete my earlier thought, uh, if some of you remember celebrating Father's Day before 1972, that's because Sonora Smart Dodd, with none of the reservations that Anna Jarvis had, happily partnered up with the New York-associated menswear retailers and other trades groups representing the men's gifts industries to basically sell Father's Day and its accompanying ties and cologne and novelty golf balls to the American public. And it was those trade groups who successfully lobbied for national recognition of Father's Day, a holiday they'd already gotten most of America celebrating simply through advertising and promotional sales and all the other tools of old-fashioned commercialism. At this very moment, we've had another new federal holiday recognized in the U.S., Juneteenth, commemorating the date of the Emancipation Proclamation and the eventual legislative abolition of slavery that followed in a series of steps after that. It seems to me that fears about Juneteenth getting commercialized aren't a major part of the discussion around the holiday, and I'm not sure what that tells us about how our national culture has changed since the early 20th century. Now, those concerns do exist, uh, but they don't seem to be central to the discussion. A quick Google search of Juneteenth commercialization does turn up a fair number of hand-wringing think pieces though a good number of them seem to be about questioning the motives of corporations that were acknowledging the holiday last year. And I can't quite sort out how much of that is conservative bemoaning of identity politics forcing itself on the poor American consumer, and how much of it is black activists concerned about the holiday being appropriated and stripped of its political significance. But having at least some people on both ends of the ideological spectrum fretting is just another bit of history repeating itself. The socialist women finding themselves aligned with the National Congress of Mothers once more. But I think for the majority, commercialization isn't a danger. It's desirable. That's how our culture today demonstrates veneration and acceptance. By wearing the t-shirt, buying the coffee mug, hanging the flag in your front yard. I can't really imagine anyone, for example, decrying the proliferation of rainbow merchandise for pride who isn't someone who's opposed to pride. The existence of the merchandise is kind of the proof of the success of the ideals of the celebration. I mean, of course, I can imagine someone arguing the same line about culture being appropriated and the radical politics being quashed, but I haven't actually seen that getting any kind of serious attention. Anyway, all of this has so far spilled out in digression from my opening point, which was just that it was the U.S. who established the third Sunday of June date for Father's Day, uh, which has now become internationally adopted by a large number of countries, uh, but not all countries. And one of the other dates for Father's Day has medieval roots. America and the U.K. have different Mother's Days. Uh, the U.K. ties it to Mothering Sunday, an observance that does go back to the Middle Ages, but America and Britain share the same Father's Day. So do Canada, Ireland, Singapore, Kenya, and most other English-speaking nations, except for Australia and New Zealand, who celebrate it on the first Sunday in September. That does align it with the start of spring in the Southern Hemisphere, but I can't find other reasons for the difference between them and most of the rest of the Commonwealth. 
The American date is also followed by several other European nations, including France, the Netherlands, Greece, and the Czech Republic. However, a range of other dates are observed by other European countries. The most common of these is March 19th, which brings us at long last back around to medieval traditions, as that day is the Feast of St. Joseph, a fitting day to celebrate fatherhood as one honors the adoptive father of Jesus. Though, since it falls in the middle of Lent, that presumably puts a damper on the festivities a bit. Father's Day is honored on St. Joseph's Day in Italy, Spain, and Portugal, as well as Liechtenstein, Croatia, and Antwerp, as well as a handful of South American and African countries with colonial ties to the Iberian Peninsula, though most of South America follows the U.S. date. Most of Scandinavia, uh, excluding Denmark, celebrates it on the second Sunday of November, again for reasons I can't find a clear explanation for. And Germany is alone in marking Father's Day on Ascension Day, which occurs 40 days after Easter, and which, according to Wikipedia, was originally, or at least since the 18th century, more a general celebration of masculinity and men onto which the concept of Father's Day has been grafted. It was, and maybe still is, uh, German listeners, let me know, marked by men going off on group hikes, pulling wagons full of different sorts of alcohol, and Wikipedia, again, cites the Federal Statistical Office of Germany for the fact that alcohol-related accidents are typically three times more common on that day. I don't know if we see anything similar in America on Father's Day, um, but given that lots of American fathers famously celebrate Father's Day as an extremely sedentary holiday, uh, the image of dad feet up in the recliner is almost synonymous with the day, I'd imagine we actually don't do so bad on the accidents front. Okay, to at last turn towards our text for today, we're going to hear one of my favorite medieval writers, Walter Mapp, the 12th century humorist and courtly wit, complain about how hard it is to be the man of the house. We last heard from him way back in episodes 50 and 51, in the two-parter called Concerning Fire and Fury in the Palace, in which he was comparing life in the court of King Henry II to life in the chaos and tumult of hell, and today's selection actually carries on directly from the end of episode 51's reading, to show how the king himself is not to blame for this hellishness of courtly life, by analogy to Mapp's trials and tribulations running his own little household. The earlier excerpt was more a kind of highbrow university satire, using the classical imagery of Tartarus to allegorically comment on Henrikian politics. But today, Mapp shifts modes and gives us a kind of medieval version of domestic observational humor that feels like it would fit in alongside James Thurber or maybe Dave Barry and it leans into assumptions about the role of the father in the house that probably would have still felt quite natural coming from Thurber or any 50s sitcom dad, and would have already started to feel fairly dated in Dave Barry's height in the 1980s and 90s, and now feel more inescapably regressive. Though, unlike what you might expect, it's not really about masculinity or gender at all, and is all about wealth, who makes the money, who spends it, and what constitutes fairness in those relationships. And that's where it feels the most like an old sitcom to me. Walter Mapp could be the sitcom father in his easy chair, smoking his pipe, and having to bring out his wallet yet again to give Patty Duke some money so she can get a new outfit for the sock hop or whatever, gently rolling his eyes at the frivolity of his children. 
That's the retro Father's Day vibe we'll be getting here. But we'll explore this issue a teensy bit more after we hear the text. First, one little clarification that gives us an excuse to dip into one of our favorite things, an etymology lesson. Walter Mapp is not a father, except in as much as he is ordained clergy, uh, though even there, he was the kind of medieval cleric whose career was clerical much more in the modern bureaucratic sense than the religious one. He was a career civil servant and diplomat, which made him a fairly wealthy householder, frequently obligated to entertain high-status guests, uh, which also carries echoes of the sitcom and the boss coming over to dinner and all that. Uh, so he's not being pestered by a wife and children. His conflicts arise with his household servants, whom he perceives as all working one giant con on him. That also could be a classic sitcom setup. Uh, we've got plenty of shows based around the lower status workers pulling things over on their clueless or tyrannical bosses, uh, whether you're talking the IT crowd or Taxi or MASH. Anyway, Walter Mapp is not a father, but he is a pater familias, the head of the household. We might say head of the family, but that highlights the interesting etymological issue here. In classical Latin, familia did not mean family as we use it in English. Familia comes from the noun famulus, which means a servant or slave. The familia was the body of servants in the household, which the pater familias employed or owned and managed. This sense of the word still sticks with us in the word familiars, as in a witch's familiars, magical servants. If ancient Romans wanted to refer to parents and their children, they more often would have considered that the domus, the home, figuratively representing the nuclear family, which itself is different from the larger family kinship group or clan or dynasty, the gens or gens. So somehow, and here I confess I don't know the historical nuance that led to this particular semantic rewiring, um, but as these terms come into English, we end up with family from familias, meaning blood relations, and domestics from domus, meaning household servants. We get them almost exactly backwards. Though it's not just an English problem. This same semantic change shows up in the Romance languages too, so it's a broader issue with post-classical Latin and its own children. All right, let's get to that text. If you want to know more about Walter Mapp, go listen to the first bit of episode 50. Uh, all of our old episodes are still available in the feed and on our website, and if you want to take in the full opening of Walter Mapp's only surviving book, the De Nugus Curialium, or A Courtier's Trifles, then just listen to episodes 50, 51, and today's episode, and you'll basically be getting the text straight through uh, if you ignore my commentary. So, here we go, continuing the first distinction of the De Nugus, as translated in 1923 by M.R. James, picking up right after Mapp's comparison of the royal court to the halls of hell. throw the blame of this upon our Lord and Master, for in this world there is nothing quiet, and no one can long enjoy any sort of tranquility. 
God strives to show us at every point that we must not seek here an abiding city. And again, there is no man so wise that he can govern even a single household without some mistake or disturbance arising in it. I myself am the ruler of but a small establishment, and yet I cannot hold the reins of my little team. I try to be good to them all, so far as I can, that they may suffer no lack either in food, drink, or raiment. Their object, on the other hand, is to scrape together out of my substance, by any and every means, something to increase their own. All that I have, they call ours. All that they have, their own. If I bring a just charge against any of them, he denies it and finds others to back him. Should any member of the household bear witness on my side, he is called a flatterer. You are on the master's side. You tell lies to please him. You earn your presence well. Never mind, we will stick to the truth, even if for the time being we fall out of favor. Such remarks are hissed out in my hearing. What, I wonder, is done or said to him outside the presence? It is certain that he will be so abused and bullied that he will contract a horror of truth ever afterwards. For my dues and income they have no pity, but vie with each other in propitiating their own bellies and backs at my expense. The one who cheats his master to treat a fellow servant gains their praise and is approved as a faithful comrade. He who has lied successfully goes and laughs among his fellows to think he has got round the master. If one has made me go wrong, he is delighted at the mistake and turns round and makes a long nose at me. Do I take some prudent step which inconveniences them? Up comes one with a long face, an air of depression, and with a pumped-up sigh he says, don't take it to heart, dear master. People are talking about you having done this. As far as I'm concerned, God knows I'm perfectly satisfied. It seems to me the right thing to do, but you should hear the language they're using. After him comes another, independently, with the like discourse. A third follows with the same lesson, and still they come, until I am driven to doubt or disbelieve the facts. None of them ever specifies my critics or tells me, so-and-so says this of what you have done, it is always, people are saying this and that. And by putting the blame on people, every individual is exonerated. No one is marked out with whom I can argue the point. Otherwise, the trick would come out. Again, if I have a servant who tries to please me by economies, he earns the hatred of the whole body. They say to him, it was a good house before you came into it. You've upset the whole place. You're a shame and a disgrace to the place and to master you are. Ah, you'll see what you'll get by it all. Oh, how considerate we are for master's purse. Why, what good do you suppose will come of all this pinching? What's master to do with all this money coming in? Store it up, say you? Yes, and make you his heir, I suppose, or else you'll cut his throat and walk off with it. I'll tell you what you are making him store up, and that's the bad opinion, yes, and the dislike of all his friends, people that used to look up to him as if he were God. Why, you're like the silly man that spared his land and died of starvation. Do you suppose that providence will forsake master or deceive him? You think you're so clever, and what you really are is a fool. One of my servants was so persecuted by abuse of this kind that at last he came and complained of it to me with tears. Brother, I said to him, you must go. It is only too true that no man can serve two masters. You have followed the Lord and dealt well and faithfully. These others, under the guidance of the devil, have arrived at the point of reviling faithfulness. Here are two alternatives. 
No man of wisdom will choose the worst and forsake the best. Well, said he, I can't stand out against them all single-handed. I'd sooner give up the whole business to you than be torn in pieces by these quarrelings. Goodbye, sir. My prudence in this cost me an excellent servant and gave the greatest satisfaction to my household. I saw what they had been at, and so called them all together and laid before them how I had lost a good servant in consequence of the quarrelsomeness of some of them, I knew not whom. Every one began at once to excuse himself with oaths. The man, said they, who robs you of a good servant is nothing short of a traitor to you. I proceeded to ask their advice. To whom should I entrust the office and duties of him who had gone? My intention being to choose not the man they wanted, but the man they didn't want, for I was sure they would give me the dog's advice. The fable is an old one and well known. The husband and wife were discussing which part of the flitch of bacon they should put in the pot. The woman said the side, the man said the bone. The bone, husband, put in the dog, meaning, you're the husband, you have your way, and I shall get the better dinner. Well, I knew their advice would be the same sort. They would consider their own profit and neglect mine. I ascertained what their wish was, postponed its fulfillment, and handed over the charge of everything to a lad who had not yet outgrown his fear of the whip, strictly charging him to do nothing without my knowledge. At first he was afraid and did well. Then the rest began carrying out their depredations and setting traps for him. He looked about for what was missing, complained of his losses, shed tears. I knew what was going on. The others threw the blame on me for entrusting matters of such moment to an inexperienced fool, and went on to say, Everyone is surprised at you, and really quite upset, if I only dare say. Say on, you have leave. Well, they can't think how you have changed so all of a sudden, and become so stingy that everyone talks of it, always wanting to know everything and keep everything locked up close. We're quite put out of countenance by all that's said about you. After this, they hit on a plan which was really very hard on me. They would go into the streets and lanes and say that I had sent them to compel travelers to come in. The servants in the house received the guests with the greatest respect, said that I was most anxious to see them, and hoped they would come often. Then they would run in to me and announce that the guests had arrived, men of good position, and made me welcome them, in no wise desiring to do so. Then they made meat and drink fly, and gorged themselves to any extent in my presence, which they knew I hated, and actually compelled the high and the humble, willing and reluctant, to make away with all the provisions, feigning to do this exclusively to increase my reputation. Correctly enough, according to the Lord's teaching, they took no thought for the morrow, for they turned everything out of doors. When I charged them with being drunk, they swore they were not drunk, but only happy, and that I was a hard man to blame them for the pains they had been glad to take in my honor. When I came back from church in the morning, I would find a huge fire, and the guests of yesterday, who I hoped had gone, sitting round it. My servants would whisper to me, Dinner will be wanted. They think there isn't an inn for a long distance. They don't know what they'll find there. Better throw the handle after the axe. You've begun well. End well, too. Don't you be anxious. God hasn't given away everything yet. You are but spending what you have. Trust in the Lord. It's common talk that they'll make you a bishop. Away with pinching. Spend the lot. 
adventure all you fancy, fortune favors the brave. One can lock up a crust till it's of no use. Pluck up good courage, keep nothing back, or you may spoil the luck that is on its way to you. When this lot of guests is gone, they ask in another at once. Before these have arrived, they come to me and complain that the crowd of guests is wearing them out and ruining me, pretending to deplore what they really enjoy. Among this household, I have some nephews who are completely masters of my property. No one can say them nay. They are the stoutest enemies I have. Anything I spend on them, they reckon as a due, and neither feel nor pay me any thanks for it. Were I to assign them the whole estate and keep back something which might be useful to them, they would think it nothing. They would even abuse me and be much annoyed, starting aside like a broken bow. Their view being that I was born for their benefit and not my own, and that they are masters and I the servant, who have got together nothing for myself but everything for them. The father in Terence, who had similar saviors of his property, says, My only possession is myself. And indeed, many, though not all, fathers may say the same. Certainly, my people have got the upper hand of me. Mine, did I say? Rather, their own, for they pay no attention to anybody but themselves. While they are fresh, they exercise a good deal of care, but drop it later on. I know a master of a house who gets a new set of servants every year. A good many people consequently think him fickle, but to me, he seems a wise and careful man, for he always finds his servants respectful and attentive. Well, all this has been urged in defense of our king. How is he to keep in order thousands of thousands and govern them peaceably when we small fathers of households cannot control the few we have? The truth is, that every house has one servant and many masters. The head serves everyone. Those by whom he is served are to be reckoned as masters. Our court, I take it, lives in a more perilous world than other households, fluctuating and variable. Yet I dare not in any wise lay this to the charge of our king, for in a hall that holds many thousand diverse minds, there must be much error and much confusion. Neither he nor any other man can remember the name of each individual, much less know their hearts. And no one can entirely control a household whose thought and speech, I mean the speech of their hearts, he knows not. The Lord divides the waters from the waters, the peoples from the peoples. He is the searcher of hearts and the cleanser of them, sitting upon the waters and ruling them in power. But no one can prevent our giants murmuring beneath the waters. So, there's Walter Mapp's argument that really it's the rich and powerful who deserve our pity. They're so hard done by. I actually have sort of mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, yes, obviously, this is an ancient, deeply self-serving sentiment that the powerful and the wealthy and the famous have all used to try to convince everyone else, and themselves too, I'm sure, that privilege is really a huge burden and that their lives are actually harder than those of the underprivileged, uh, you know, the simple life. 
it's pretty noxious. On the other hand, I expect MAPS experience has its own truth, that there are servants and employees who are obsequious to the boss's face and backbiting schemers behind their back. Many of us have probably been witness to some version of that, uh, even some heads of household who, uh, without any domestic servants, have probably experienced children's efforts to manipulate favor and deflect blame. I suppose the truest thing to say is that uh, unbalanced systems of power tend to draw all participants into exploitive methods for getting the best out of it that one can. Uh, and it doesn't all just flow downhill. You know, the king beats the knight, so the knight beats his page, and the page goes and kicks the dog. That kind of paradigm. Uh, it doesn't just all go top-down. There are complex eddies and backflows in the dynamics of exploitation that entangle all parties. That's not to let Walter Mapp off the hook, though. His version of heavy hangs the head that wears the crown, uh, this idea that the master, the king, is really the one who is servant to all his subjects, uh, that's right up there with this hurts me more than it hurts you in grotesque apologies for domination. That said, the other aspects of Mapp's analogy here does have some merit. Uh, the idea that the system develops its own will that can't be entirely controlled by even the most absolute despot. I really hate to use or validate the term deep state, uh, but there is a truth to that idea. I think the way that it's portrayed in the British civil service uh, in a show like Yes Minister is probably more true to life than the conspiracy theories that have attached to the idea of deep state here in the U.S. But my point is that I'm sure historians would agree with Mapp, uh, at least to some extent, that while Henry II might have been able to set a tone for his rule, he could only have so much control over the dynamic organism that the English state had evolved into in the 12th century, no matter how absolute his claim to power. Before we wrap up, I wanted to touch on one little rhetorical detail from the very end of today's passage. Uh, Map closes with the phrase, but no one can prevent our giants murmuring beneath the waters. Uh, so that's presumably a reference to Job, chapter 26, verse 5. In the Latin Vulgate, this is, Eci gigantes gemunt sub aquis et qui habitant cum eis. Or, per the Doe Reims translation, Behold, the giants groan under the waters, and they that dwell with them. The Hebrew word which both the Greek Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate translate as giants there is rephaim, a rather obscure term with a range of meanings. Uh, it was used to refer to a race of people of above-average stature, which seems to be the main reason for the use of gigantes, or giants, uh, and that has links to the Nephilim and other sort of biblical, semi-monstrous, or quasi-angelic races. But the other, more dominant sense of the word in the Hebrew Bible is simply spirits of the dead. And that's how you see the verse in Job translated in most modern translations. Uh, the NIV, for example, gives it as, the dead are in deep anguish, those beneath the waters and all that live in them. Even the King James Version ditched the giants, though it struggles with the sense of the verse. Uh, it says, dead things are formed from under the waters and the inhabitants thereof, which sounds a bit off uh, compared to almost every other translation. Anyway, there are some fairly obvious ways to connect the two senses. The idea that Adam and the early patriarchs and ancient heroes were giants was fairly common, for example, uh, and thus the spirits of the old patriarchs would be spirits of giants. One linguistic theory is that we have two separate words here, a Hebrew word for spirits and a loan word for a legendary ancient people 
uh, linked to you know giant lore. Uh, and then folklore could easily bridge that gap and entangle those two different roots into one word. Some medieval Christians picked up on these biblical giants and used them as a way to harmonize Greco-Roman mythology with the Bible, interpreting them as the Greek titans trapped beneath the earth and its oceans in Tartarus, which is likely an association Walter Mapp is deliberately evoking in Echoing Job here, since he's just taken us on a tour of a very Greco-Roman hell in the parts of this text covered in the other two Walter Mapp episodes. Of course, this bit of syncretism was not universal. There were plenty of other theologians who brooked no acceptance or validation of any Greco-Roman pagan cosmology uh, and sought only biblical explanations for what these giants were. The early 19th century Methodist theologian Adam Clark offers a commentary on this verse in Job that suggests that perhaps the gigantes here are in fact meant to be sea monsters, which is its own biblical motif. Based on more modern commentators, I don't think there's much textual support for that claim, but it did get me wondering if maybe some medieval people reached the same conclusion Clark did. After all, in Beowulf, the gigantes are listed alongside elves and ettins and orcs as the descendants of Cain. Maybe there's a marine link to these giants in the Beowulf tradition that connects them to Grendel's mother and her decidedly aquatic qualities a different tradition of giants than that of the Norse Jotnar or the British terrestrial variety epitomized by Gog and Magog in early medieval histories. Perhaps Grindel's mother, the Brimwulf, the sea wolf, comes in part from these Vulgate giants murmuring beneath their waters. And we're talking about mothers again on our already belated Father's Day episode, so I'll stop there and bring the show to an end with a late medieval, early Renaissance version of what we would call a dad joke in the form of a riddle. Here it is from the Demons Joyus. What is he that made all and sold all, and he that bought all, lost all? So did you get that? I'll say it one more time. Uh, and to clarify, the answer here is not a one-word solution. Uh, the Riddler is asking for you to explain the scenario that's being described. So here it is. What is he that made all and sold all, and he that bought all, lost all? Ready for the answer? I don't think you can be ready for this answer. The answer, as stated in the text, is a smith made an all and sold it, and the shoemaker that bought it lost it. That's right. It's a terrible pun on all, A-L-L, and all, A-W-L, the leatherworking tool. He that made all and sold all, and he that bought all, lost all, or really, he that made the all, sold the all, and he that bought the all, lost the all. Uh, not much explanation for the loss of the definite article there, but I'll forgive it, since it reminds me of one of my favorite dumb jokes from Young Frankenstein, which is also one of my father's favorite movies. So, happy belated Father's Day, Dad. <laughs> Werewolf. Werewolf? There. What? Werewolf. There. Castle. Why are you talking that way? I thought you wanted to. No, I don't want to. Suit yourself. I'm easy. With that, this episode draws to its close. I'd like to recognize and thank our most recent new Patreon supporters, Tia, Frederic, Jason, Jordan, 
and Adam. Thank you all very much. Uh, and here's one example of how you're helping. Uh, I recently lost my old institutional access to the Oxford English Dictionary Online, uh, and you patrons are covering the cost of the individual subscription that I now have to get to the OED, uh, along with uh, software subscriptions and hosting and so much more. Again, thank you. Anyone who would like to support the show can do so for just a dollar a month at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. Uh, doing so also gets you access to some bonus audio materials, including our audiobook of Jordanus's Wonders of the East, a medieval travelogue of sorts that might be a great accompaniment to vacation travels of your own. You can also get information, including bibliographic references, about this and every episode of the show at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can send me email there to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter for news and updates and the occasional random observations about things like weird references in horror movies I'm watching or games I'm playing or other random thoughts I'm struck with an inexplicable urge to share. Uh, but anyway, you can find all that at MDT Podcast on Twitter. We'll be back soon with another installment of our medieval true crime miniseries. Until then, remember your pater or mater familias, and thanks for listening.